Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. My next guest is Tyler Martin, a CPA by trade who has literally worked with thousands of businesses over his years. Not only did Tyler build an accounting practice, which he eventually sold, but he also bought into a software engineering firm that he grew from $5 million in revenue to around $25 million in revenue before selling for an eight-figure sum to a multi-billion dollar acquirer. In this episode, Tyler shares the ins and outs of that deal and some key tips on how to scale a business to those levels. This is Tyler Martin. Hey, Tyler. Welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Thanks so much. So excited to be talking with you today. Buddy, I'm really, really pleased to have you on. We, we've uh, obviously had a chat in the past, which has been been very, very nice, and I got to hear a little bit about your background, and uh, I've been very much looking forward to having you on. So thank you for making the time. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for having me. Um, I, I'm very keen, uh, as you know, to have a bit of a chat about your your business, um, the Embedded Resource Group, which I, you know you obviously know you went through a, a transaction and, and sold to to Yo. Um, so keen to hear a little bit about that, but maybe maybe you could just start and just give us a little bit of your background, I guess, and what led you to that business, and um, you know, just paint paint the picture a bit for us. Absolutely. So my career started out in the CPA world. That's a certified public accountant in the States and uh, worked for uh, several small firms. Uh, One firm, I was on track to become a partner. And uh, one day I woke up and I decided I want to start my own business. And so uh, I literally quit this uh, cushy, well-paying job. And about a week later, rented an office and I was sitting in a white walled office by myself with one desk, staring at this empty wall, no frame on it, going, did I do the right thing? I literally had zero, <laughs> I had zero clients. Um, and, uh, you know, my mind started to play with me a little bit in terms of whether, whether I did the right thing or not. Five years, five years later, I had 200 business clients, most family held, closely held corporations, small businesses under probably 5 million in revenue on tip, on average, and uh, had a very vi- vibrant growing practice. I had a nice referral base. I, I you know, I had a health, healthy practice. And one of, the, one of those clients were, uh, I be, had become really close to, and he was starting an engineering services firm. And uh, we became friends. And after about a year of him starting his business, he had said to me, hey, would you ever consider joining me in, in a CFO capacity or a controller capacity? I said, well, hey, you know, if, if I can sell my practice and I can get the right price, I would consider it. So I put my practice on the market. And uh, before you know it, I had like three different offers and uh, I sold it really quickly and I joined him. And uh, from there, I went on to uh, spend the next eight years, actually eight out of 10 years running an engineering services business. 
Yeah, right. So, so let me let me go back a couple of steps here because uh, you're in a job; it pays you well. There's security, there's comfort, right? And and you know, I think most of the people listening to this will be business owners and stuff like that, so they they probably relate to this in some ways. But what motivates you? You know, like to to one day, you know, what what was it that made you just go, oh, I don't want all of this," you know, and. You know, the, the willingness to give up that security and that comfort level to go and sit in a room on your own with no clients, no, no nothing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't the whole, you know, I know a lot of things on nowadays on the Internet is all about, you know, corporate evil and all this other stuff. Like you don't want to work the nine to five job. It was nothing like necessarily about that. I think it was more about the challenge of could I do it? Um, it was more about the challenge. Um, no one in my family had ever run a business and just, just doing it. I mean, when I told my family, in fact, most of them thought I was crazy. Um, (laughs) and you know, definitely didn't get a lot of like, you're going to do it or motivational type things. It was like, you know, that's the dumbest move you could ever make. So it was more, I think it's like challenge. I was at the right point in my life to do it too. Like the downside to me was pretty low. I, I felt pretty confident that even if I didn't do it, I probably had a, you know, there, there were options that um, I could rebound from at that point in my life. I, so that was really reason. I mean, it was just more of like the challenge of, could I do it? And you know, the, the interesting thing is as you start to build clients um, you quickly realize, wow, this is coming to me a lot faster than I thought it would. And then it just like, it's just builds momentum and you can't even really stop it if you do it right. I mean, you start getting clients left and right from referral, from your referral sources, from other clients. Um, so yeah, it, 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 that that's what did it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. It's um, I, I think you know entrepreneurs. It's um, there's something there, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different styles of entrepreneur and different people, but I, I do think there's this quest of you know this curiosity of what's over the hill, and I want to go right. find out. And you know, sometimes that's obviously that's a metaphorical hill. It's our own challenges internally, right? But it's uh, I, I'm just fascinated with what drives people to to get out there and do stuff. And yeah, yeah. and and I think the other part to add is once you taste it it's like that taste never goes away because, you know, now I'm somewhat later in my career, I've gone through a couple sales now, but I always have that taste in my mouth. And, you know, now my outlet is working with other business owners, but that gives me that taste. I get to taste it through them of that, that challenge and that, that how do we overcome, get to the other side type of thing. It's really exciting. It never goes away. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, do, do you think that there's something in there, you know, you mentioned working with clients today, is variety an important thing to you in terms of the work you do? Yeah, I, I think that's you know that's a great question. By the way, I think that's one thing that got me into the CPA world is, you know, I was look, working with you know when I had my own practice, I had two hundred different clients, and that's two hundred different personalities, two hundred different ways they're making money, two hundred ways they're not making money. Um, <laughs> you know, just all kinds of problems, issues. It's just such a great experience uh, to get that insight of what people are doing. I remember I had. One client, this is many years ago, but she was making a million bucks a year selling uh, security equipment to police, the various police stations and police departments, various types of security equipment. And it was like, I mean, where would I ever, you know, get involved or see someone in this little niche that's spinning off this much cash flow? And I, I just, that always fascinates me. It just blows my mind even to this day where money can be made. I mean, it's just the, it seems like the opportunities are endless, frankly. 
Yeah, yeah, we, we certainly live in an abundant world. So b- before we get on to embedded, so you, you've, you've got a CPA practice, you've 200 odd clients, you, you've sold the business. You know, you and I were chatting before the show about kind of expectations around valuations and different models and people focusing on whether it's EBITDA or whatever. Um, can you give us a quick overview um, and an accounting practice? Like, is there a typical kind of model on how that sells and, and what does that generally look like? Yeah, it, it may have changed these days, but but back then, what was really common is, is there was a multiple of gross revenue, and um, usually you gave a one year guarantee, which basically said, which basically means, let's say your practice, you know, bringing in three hundred thousand dollars revenue, um, and you sell it just to make the math easy. We'll just say a multiple of one, so your sales price is three hundred thousand dollars. You guarantee that after a year. The individual collect three hundred thousand um, dollars with a, with a downside protection. You might put like an eighty percent downside protection, or, or you may say there is. You may not even give them a guarantee. You may it, depending on how hot the market was. In in the case with my practice, it was relatively. It was in that price range, give or take a little bit, which is a relatively low price range. I had multiple offers, so I was in a situation where I could kind of negotiate back and remove some of those stipulations in the deal. And I didn't get an all cash deal because that's kind of unusual. It was over a five-year plan. Um, I got a portion, but I did get 100% of what the initial sales price was. So that's how that particular service firm is typically going to be valued like that. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So so from there, you went on and say you're now in an engineering firm. Yep. Knew nothing about, about it. Yeah, <laughs> Knew nothing yeah, about it. Yeah. I'm not an engineer, um, which, which, by the way, is kind of my calling card nowadays when I talk to people is, you know, when you run a business, you don't necessarily have to be an expert in the area that you're, whatever you're running. I mean, as long as you have good people around you and you understand good core business concepts. So, um, you know, I started out there with the goal of being in a financial capacity uh, in that it would free up the, the owner to do more sales. And what turned out is he was raising, uh, he had five kids, him and his wife. They were all very young and, you know, he decided he kind of wanted to enjoy life. And so, um, and I was complaining to him a lot because he wasn't really doing the things I'd kind of envisioned as part of our relationship. And uh, so I think after complaining for a while, he just said, why don't you just kind of put your money where your mouth is and run this thing? And (laughs) I said, sure. I mean, I was always one to take on a challenge. And so I spent the next eight years running it and uh, he, he was he wasn't completely absentee. I mean, he showed up for four hours a day, but he really didn't do much. Very, very minimal. Um, and, and uh, you know, from there, it gave me a great opportunity to kind of, you know, I, I started off with the E-Myth uh, many years ago. E-Myth was a big foundation of my learnings in terms of how to run a business. So I kind of started with those own types of principles in terms of how I approached that business. And then I just started to build my own process and ways of growing and scaling the company. We went, um, from five million when I took over around five million to twenty five million in sales and in staffing engineering services that's not growing sales really isn't too hard because you're you're billing on labor. I think what what I'm most proud of is we kept really healthy profit margins and uh, really had a healthy healthy bottom line. I mean, and a lot of that was is hard to do in engineering services because it's easy to really take bad business. Um, so that those are a couple of things I think really turned out well in that eight out of ten years that I ran it. Yeah. And and by the time you get to sort of 25 million, you know, just roughly speaking, how, how many sort of staff would you have at that time? So there were roughly 150 consultants out in the marketplace. Um, all of them were W-2. Uh, we didn't do it. Well, 
99% were W-2. There were very few that qualified where we were willing to take a risk of a 1099 relationship, nor did a lot of clients even want that. And, and just and just to clarify that for, for our Australian audience too, so a W-2 means the full-time employment, right? Exactly, exactly. They're employed, yeah. they're on our payroll. Um, a 1099 is an independent contractor. Um, you have various laws where you could be, especially there was an era where independent contractors were getting a lot of bad press. So especially in the staffing world. So we really uh, avoided that. It was just not in the best interest of our client. That that, that makes sense. And, and look, I think we've got some pretty similar laws here in Australia. And I think in the US, there's a, I think there appears to be a bit of a clamp down on, you know, sort of sham contractors who are actually employees just looking, masquerading as contractors, right? Right. Well, the interesting thing though, is Simon, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but now with this whole gig economy, it's like now swung all the way over where everything is a 1099 gig, or I should say everything, but a lot, because I'm experiencing this now in a lot of different areas, everybody just assumes you're a contractor. And so it is more gray, I would argue, now than I've seen at any point in my career. Yeah, look, and I do agree, especially when you start looking at large platforms like Upwork and whatever else. And, right. you know, how do you classify somebody as an employee if you're, you know, hiring them through a, through a medium like that? Um, no, it's interesting. Um, I want to Take a, a step back again. You, you mentioned, you know, your 25 mil turnover, there's 150 odd consultants out there and, and you managed to maintain really great profits, which is which is fabulous. I'm curious about that and I wonder if you might have any sort of insights you can share. You know, I guess my experience in running people businesses and, and I've worked for very large businesses and run some fairly decent sized teams as well. Some of the challenge when you've got consultants out there is that everything is so varied, right? You've got people out there trying to mold solutions to clients and there's there's this is where margin can erode, right? People start offering or promising things that are maybe outside norms or, you know, and let's face it, every client's different. So that's, it's easy to go down that path. Are there any – how did you guys build to that sort of size and yet still maintain margin and control over those elements? Yeah, that's another great question. I think – being comfortable saying no. I mean, you just kind of hit the nail on the head. You, you know, in the engineering world, you can work for free a lot. You can, you can be evaluating deals all day long and never make any money or take stuff that doesn't make sense. And you really have to, you know, one thing I think that I did benefit from not being an engineer is I wasn't emotionally invested in anything necessarily. I was emotionally invested in obviously the company doing well, taking care of the staff, making sure everyone got paid adequately. And my mantra was, if we take good business, we work half as hard and we make twice as much. That was always my mantra. Like I just preached it to death. Um, you know, there was a company down the block, they were doing 50 million and they weren't making anything. I mean, they were taking every little $3 deal that they could take, $3 net and working as hard as they probably could and, and just not making any money. And I think, you know, I think it takes discipline. It takes um, very strong leadership because, you know, when people bring you deals and you say no to the to the salesperson that brings that deal in, it can be very combative and it can be very frictional. And I'll, I'll be candid with you, Simon, when, when I first had to deal with salespeople, which was my first experience actually managing salespeople and hiring them, um, I didn't handle it well. I was very frictional and I was very... Um, uh, dictatorial, I guess I would say. Um, and, and, and it caused, uh, you know, some fractured relationships and it, it, it wasn't, I, I definitely, after I learned after a couple of years or maybe at least a year, maybe a couple of years, um, 
to handle those situations a lot better and to remove the friction, have better conversations and just remind people of the vision. Um, so yeah, those are, those are great points, but I think, I think the answer is, uh, uh, discipline, focus, saying no, um, really knowing what your vision is and what you want to be. Um, you know, in my business, one thing that would often get said before I took over was, oh, we'll take this on as a loss leader. And those were the words that just killed me because I, you, I, my, my rebuttal is that, well, I'll take a loss leader after I'm paid a lot of money. Then I'll take a loss <laughs> leader on. Um, and, and nobody liked to hear that, but, but sometimes you just have to, you know, I always throw it back, you know, um, in terms of those conversations, because at the end of the day, it worked. We made a lot, you know, we made really good money. Uh, the staff was very well compensated. I had team people on my team, uh, making incredible amounts of money. And a lot of that was because we stayed, we stayed focused. Mm. No, that's fascinating. It's, um, I, I hear what you're saying about the loss leader thing too. I mean, you can be so bogged down doing work that doesn't make you money that you don't have time to go and search for profitable business anymore. Right. Right. So, um, you know, that's interesting. So you're in this business, you're there for sort of eight to 10 years. Um, you've grown five times in terms of your revenue. I mean, that, that must've been a pretty exciting thing to experience. It was a blast. I mean, it was great. You know, it, it's funny. Um, I do have regrets in that. I don't think I enjoyed the ride, uh, during it as much as I should have. Um, definitely have, uh, you know, after the fact, I definitely uh, uh, acknowledge the accomplishments and really bask in it, if you will. But I think during the ride, there was always anxiety of like, you know, are we going to lose a big client? Is this going to happen? Are we going to lose my star salesperson? So there was a lot of anxiety during the ride. I think that I, if I had to do it all over again, I would just kind of enjoyed the ride a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. It's... um. I think, you know, you can't do a journey without looking back saying I would, um, you know, you, that you wouldn't do anything slightly different if you're given the choice, right? So true. So true. Yeah. Was there any sort of real hard lessons, I guess, that you learned through that process? You know, I mean, you're, you're there for a long time. So no doubt there's probably a lot of lessons learned. But, you know, was there anything in terms of how you grew the business or how you, you know, those big picture things that you would change? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things that I would have probably done differently. I think after we got acquired, um, so so our model was to stay very regionally based. It's very easy to get in this model and start to try to service the whole United States. And in my opinion, um, it's kind of a recipe for disaster. You just can't gain any type of efficiency. Um, you can't really know your market that well. And so, so we stayed away from that. We stayed geographically in the, in the Bay area, Northern California, where I, I wish I would have done something different. I always had the money to open up another office and, um, I never did, but if I had to do it all over again, I probably, it was always really hard to find high quality staff. And after we got acquired, I realized that, you know, like Arizona, for example, we had many people in Arizona, uh, uh, after we got acquired that we had an office in there, I could start, start to prospect in that area. And there were like people in my same, uh, industry that were at competitors companies looking for jobs at a very, you know, fair rate that you couldn't even find here. I mean, like I, I had to train them from the ground up, uh, because there really wasn't the talent locally, um, to be able to, you know, to be able to take and just implement into my model. So I had to, I had to almost overhire every quarter. I was always running ads and my model was a train knowing two would probably not, hire three, no two would probably wouldn't make it. And, yeah. um, that was just our model and it was really intensive. But I think 
knowing after we got acquired what I knew, and I was always kind of a little bit scared, frankly, to go into other regions, uh, I definitely would have done that different because I think it could have had a, I, I think it would have propelled us a lot faster. And then the other big one, frankly, and this is ego, I'd always kind of dreamed of having a $50 million company. And uh, frankly, we weren't even intending to sell. But because the position was the business business was positioned for sale, we were in a point that we could at any time. Um, something when we even started to explore it, we had offers, and it was like it's hard to turn away once you start to see you know dollar you know when you start seeing you know eight figure offers, it makes you think like it's kind of hard to go. Well, I'm going to wait until I can double it again because you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, look, that's a fair point. And when you're in eight figures, I mean, that's that's life changing kind of money. So exactly. it's, um, it, it, I guess, it does start to take you down a different path. Um, that was an interesting comment you made about um, the business. You know, always being in a position to be sold, or, or I guess in a in a state that it's saleable. I guess is what you're saying. Was that an intentional approach from from the beginning, or is it something that evolved over time? One hundred percent intentional. So from the the only reason why I took the role um, initially is I was very close. I was very clear to the other owner. I ultimately became an owner. Um, the other owner was that, uh, you know, we're going to get the personal expenses out of the business. We're going to build systems and processes. Um, we're from from beginning to end in every area of the business, and our whole our whole focus is going to be around. Uh, selling the company someday. I mean, that was his tune too. So he was aboard on that. Now, truthfully, I think our, our our vision was like a 15 to 20 year plan probably. I mean, we weren't thinking we would probably move as fast as we did. We sold, you know, I was there 10 years. We sold eight, eight years after I had got in the, in the leadership capacity, uh, running the company capacity. So it went a lot faster. So, but it was always, that was always kind of our plan from the get-go. And it, it's part of, you know, how I approach anyone I would talk with today is like, don't wait because the longer you, it just, you know, I love that saying, you know, it's like the ultimate poker hand. I, I, you know, I've heard John Warlow, I've heard that from is, and I, who's uh, really big on, you know, building your, your, your business for sale, whether you decide whether you want to or not. Um, it just gives you the ultimate poker hand. I mean, regardless of whether you want to sell or not, you have options now. Yeah. And isn't it funny? I mean, having options is just probably the most important thing. It's you, Life changes, right? right. <laughs> it throws curveballs curveball, at you. And, you know, you mentioned even a 15, 20-year plan. I mean, look, these days I, I sort of feel like time is shortening. You know, 10 years seems like such a long time in business these days. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, in fact, you know, mostly what I hear nowadays is just like three to five years, how most yeah. people are thinking. Um, yeah, it was a long horizon of time. Um, and I think even when I reflect on it now, eight years seem like, overnight practically in terms of how fast it went by. But even that seems like a long window of time yeah. um, to do things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting. So, so when you first started talking about taking equity and, and stuff like that, so you've obviously you're having a bit of a discussion here about the plan and the future and potential to exit and, and, and was selling always at the top of that list? It was on the list. Um, you know, I'm blessed in that the guy that I worked with was like super fair, super, um, you know, I, I, there's a trade-off. I mean, I gave, you know, he spent that eight years really enjoying his life a lot, watching his kids grow up. So there was a trade-off. It, you know, what I got is I got to de develop a company and, and build a company that I 
effectively got myself out of too, where I was very not required very much in the business itself. So it was a good trade-off. Um, but I think that was always on our plate. I don't, I don't know if we ever could say, you know, until you start to get interest, at least for, for me, I can say this until you, and, and for both of us, really, until we started to get interest, I think it was just like, we were thinking about it a lot and it seemed cool, but until like, you start seeing offers and you, they start flying you out um, for, you know, to talk with you about your business. And then, you know, it, it keeps escalating. And then you're sitting in a room of attorneys for three days straight, and then it gets to another level. And then, you know, and it, it just all just starts to keep going forward. And then it becomes more real. And it becomes like, yeah, I think we have always thought about selling yeah. and now it's playing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It suddenly becomes real. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, how the buyer came about. What was it like the process of finding buyers, discovering them, and where, where how that all started? Yeah. So, so we had a broker to start out with. And, um, you know, frankly, most, I, I got to guess I should be careful how I word it, but a lot of the, the, the prospects that were presented to us just weren't even close to anything we would consider. So, you know, we had things, you know, our concerns were how are the staff going to be taken care of? You know, huge thing, really important. Um, obviously, purchase price uh, is is right up there on the list of our concerns. What did it look like we were going to be inquire, acquired into? Like, what was their staff like? Um, were, were we, um, you know, was it a strategic acquisition? Was it someone that wanted to get into the engineering space? All those things, you know, were things going through your head. You know, we had one true story. We had one buyer that was in China. They didn't speak English. Um, so we had an interpreter. We spent two hours on a conversation with them. It was one of the most, and it was like four o'clock in the morning or whatever the time was, some <laughs> crazy time. So we could be in their time zone. Um, couldn't really understand through the interpreter this whole time. Everything was taken forever. Finally, when we get to the end of the conversation, they say to us, well, you know, we're really interested in buying you. And of course, immediately your heart like jumps up. But we don't want you to sell for six months. I'm making up the timeline, but it's some crazy timeline. We don't want you to sell for six months. So if you could please not sell for six months, we'll come back and buy you. And, you know, we just looked at each other and we go, did we just really spend two hours to get this pitched at us? <laughs> um, and so needless to say, we never talked to them again. But that that's the, what the broker was mostly bringing to us. And then um, we had our own little network of relationships. And it turned out there was a company in our network that, um, didn't have an office performing in our area at all, or it wasn't doing very well. And so it made sense for them strategically uh, to have a presence in Northern California. Uh, that's a very, you know, you got the Googles, the Facebooks, all these tech companies, which is where we, we focused in to be able to have an instant press presence for them became a really, really uh, attractive thing for them. And they're a multi-billion dollar privately owned company that, uh, you know, they, they have offices all around over the United States. So that's the way it kind of played out. And then it just kind of took a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was yo, that was the eventual buyer. Yeah, that was yo. I, you know, they are private. I don't know if we're supposed to be talking about their numbers, but um, hopefully it's, it's generic enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Oh, look, we won't, we won't try to drill into that. That's fine. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, large company, you know, um, no doubt they have some broad things in the press. So, okay. So that's interesting. And so they, um, you know, did the broker main stay in the process at that point and then continue to help manage things? Or? No, no. So, so, um, I actually negotiated the broker out at that point. And I think he was kind of happy to get anything legally. 
you know, this is probably a weird situation, but we kind of felt like, you know, he almost, yeah, I mean, we just had some things happen that could have even sabotaged our own deal. And so there was a little bit of frustration in the relationship, I'll say, in, in the most correct way I can say it. And so we basically bought him out. Um, I mean, technically he could have got credit for, uh, probably the relationship that we procured. Um, but I think he realized that there was some frustration from the way the process was working and, um, we, d- we paid him a fa- very fair sum. Um, and so I think he was just happy to kind of wash his hands and, and be out Move of on. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. So, so from the time that you started chatting to, to the guys at Yo, um, how long did the process take from initial discussion through, you know, negotiations and DD and all that sort of stuff? It, it was a good, uh, I think, like seven or eight months, that whole process from beginning to ending. And it was super stressful. Um, you know, I think one of the most stressing par- stressful parts was just sitting in the room for two days with literally a team of people just pummeling you with questions one after another. Um, about financial statements, about your team, about why you did things. Um, it, it caused a lot of anxiety. I mean, frankly, and, and you know, um, after we're done with that, then they start, like you said, the due diligence, you start providing information. Um, it was a long process. And then there's a closing period. And, um, and then the after the fact is the transition, you know, the, the integration of your, our back office went back East. And so then there's a process of, of that, that integration that took place that, um, which is probably honestly the hardest thing too, Simon, because you kind of build this baby, if you will, this child that grows up and then, you know, every company is going to have their own style. Um, once they acquire you, they now own you and their style is going to become your style. Now, um, I think some companies are more prepared for that, how they're going to handle that transition. Um, I think it was a little bit new, uh, for this company in terms of how they handled it. And I think our, you know, I think it was really challenging because we, we had a very high delivery to our clients, very high touch. And, and that was different from the acquiring company and their style. It was hard. Like, you know, you had these relationships where you were so used to of reminding the client that their PO was almost out of funds and the client would go, they were so happy because they were getting this high level of service they never usually got. And now you had to go to a model where that really isn't their style. Um, so that, that transition, that change, I think as an owner, you kind of have to be prepared and um, just get comfortable with it because it is once the deal's done, you know, you just have to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's an interesting. I think it speaks to culture, right? Because it's. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, on simple levels, I, I define culture as just the way we do things around here, and um, and you know, if you you guys kind of have a way of doing things, and if it's polar opposites to the way your acquirer does it, wow, that could be a big shift for for not just yourselves as the owners. I guess I imagine your employees as well. Yeah, you know, this is the cool thing. Well, there's a couple parts to this. So, you know, we were really what I would consider uh, a premium offering at a premium price point. Um, you know, our acquirer was more of a volume, I would say lower margins in terms of what they focused around. So it was all about high, vo- very high volume. Um, I think their delivery was, was not at a premium point. And so I think that's definitely getting used to what I think they did really well though. And even I think believe to this day, I don't know for sure because I'm not really intact in as much, but, um, they really left the staff, they let, they let the, the business unit, if you will, operate as a premium offering. Now, the back office no longer necessarily had that premium level of touch to it, but the front part of the sales uh, 
still does. So, um, so yeah, but there are some challenges. I think they did a really good job. I got to applaud them. They retained all the key staff. Um, they, they treated people well, from what I understand from a compensation standpoint, they've, they've met, you know, one thing I think sometimes, uh, happens as commission plans get played around with and, and that can cause people to leave. And they've been really, from what I understand, very sensitive to keeping the, you know, people that are performing at a high level and compensating them at a high level. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, talk to private equity teams and companies and people and, you know, VC people. And it's, it seems that the, you know, the one sort of unwritten law here is, you know, when you're acquiring a, a business is, is do no harm, right? Go, don't go and damage the assets you're buying. Um, yet having said that, it's, you do see a lot of people who kind of screw that up a bit. So, right. Right. <laughs> so, and, but- and in, in fairness, Simon, I think sometimes, you know, these companies, I think they might be new to acquiring and they're going like, I remember for me, you know, what was just so overwhelming is, you know, we're a relatively small company. We had like 20 different people wanting to get into our integration. I mean, we're just, we're just like a little tiny company. We don't really need like, you know, 20 different people, five different departments, 10 different departments, everyone with their own needs and what they want so they can integrate us. It's just overwhelming in, in a very short amount of time. And that can make for a really unsettling acquisition because, um, you know, people do get really fr- frustrated, tension, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. All that happens from that, that not just the, maybe it's lack of experience is what I think it is. And, you know, I think that's what causes it, frankly. Yeah. And I mentioned this, there's, there's just, it's extra work on people's plates, right? It's, you know, they're, they're outside their normal kind of operating mode and, and having to deal with new things. So, um, and actually that, that leads me to a question because it's, you know, you've, you've obviously managed this transaction yourself. Um, many of my other guests have made comments, um, you know, words to the effect that managing the transaction was like taking on a second job. Yeah, and and they had to do their regular job, but this thing was all encompassing, and that was, and that was probably what added to the stress. Did you find that was sort of similar thing, or you know, I I think I think the integration was really stressful for sure. Like the after after the sale, um, just because we had so many parties coming to us, but a lot of our, you know, the business was set up, so it really didn't rely on me much. It, it really uh, intent. I mean, I was really free from the business by the time we sold in terms of it relying on me any, in any way. And the other owner had been out of the picture for quite a while in terms of it relying on him. So I didn't really feel, you know, frankly, I felt the stress of a lot of people coming at me, but I didn't really feel like, oh, I can't get this done. Or I, I think what did happen a little bit is during integration because we were getting so sucked into that integration, particularly me, I was kind of um, involved in a lot of it and with my staff too. I think we did lose a little bit of, because we had an earnout, and I think we did lose, take our eye off the ball a little bit that hurt our potential for our earnout because of, you know, when you got 20 people coming at you asking you for things, um, that takes your eye off the ball and that effect. And ultimately I kind of felt a little frustrated because I felt like knowing what I knew now, um, and, and I never expected to collect, collect the earnout, frankly, that, I mean, I've been taught from a very young point in my career that don't ever expect to collect the earnout. I mean, but, you know, may, the cash that you're getting is expect to get earnout is great EV if you get it. And sure enough, we weren't even close. Um, so I would say that's one other thing that was frustration is just how, how spread thin 
probably more the staff was and just take, just because all these things are changing, it ta- you just can't keep your eye on the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about the earnout situation without, you know, going into the, the, the sort of confidential private parts of it, but you know, this, this question of an earnout and, and, you know, not hitting it. And, and, you know, I guess it's the, one of the big things that a lot of business owners are concerned about, what do you think was one of the main reasons you weren't able to get to the numbers and, and hit that earnout figure? Yeah. I mean, it was based around dollar amount of GP. We had never hit that dollar amount of GP previously. It would have taken 30% growth. So could we have done it? Sure. Could we have done it during an integration? No. I mean, there's just, there's just too many things going on. And, and um, you know, we didn't, ex- you know, I mean, it was a, it turned out to be, you know, in my deal, I actually almost had a double sided earnout. I had, if we would have hit the earnout, I also would have got a personal bonus that was just part of the negotiation. So it was a lot of, it was like kind of a pretty decent amount of money. Um, but I have to be honest, you know, when we were doing the negotiation, we, our complete thought was we would never earn the earnout. The earnout was just gravy. So yeah, it just, it was just hard to have 30% growth or whatever that number was somewhere in that range and, and also deal with an integration at a very fast pace. Yeah, no, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. So clearly you were, you were comfortable with the upfront number right. and, and everything outside the earnout. So, um, you know, you'd made your peace with that. Um, it, so, I mean, I could talk to you about this all day, so I've got a little cognizant of time, but I, 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 I was just interested in terms of the transaction, so it was seven or eight months or so. Did, you know, the initial offers and discussions around value, did that number change much from the beginning of the process through to the end? Yeah, I think we bumped it up three times. And, um, you know, I had less stake in the game and I was making like a, you know, I was a minority owner and... um so, so I had a little less stake. So for me, I could have probably walked away from the deal. I was making really good money. Um, you know, I can't necessarily say that for the other owner. I mean, for him, it was a lot more life changing. And so, you know, you had these conflicting viewpoints and I had to be respectful. You know, I had to be respectful from his viewpoint. I, honestly, at the end of the day, I didn't probably even have the majority to say anyway, but I totally, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, it's life changing money. Um, I, I, I was very respectful of where he was at, but I, I think we could have even probably, frankly, got a little bit of a better price. I think we did really well. It did go on like, I think, two or three times. And then finally, when we got to the third time, they just said, take it early. And I would always like feed them with what was what was our basis for why we wanted more. And yeah. and the first couple of times it worked really well. And then I think the third time they're like, dude, you either take the deal or we're gone. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, look, look, they're, they're not really going to go away. I, I don't think they really need us. We're a strategic acquisition. And, you know, at that point, it was kind of like, and, and I, honestly, I was happy. I, I was definitely happy with the sale. So it was like, I, I didn't want it to die, but there was a part of me that was like, I, you know, I always believe when you're negotiating a deal, you really want to try to be unemotional if you can be, and you really do want to go like, okay, if this dies, can you live? Like, can, are you okay? If this deal dies, can, are you cool with that? And, and so I came to peace with that, that could happen. Um, and it just still played out. I mean, and we, you know, we were treated very fairly, frankly. Look, that's really interesting. I, I think your point there, though, is having made that decision in your mind that you're willing to walk away right. puts you psychologically in a fabulous position to negotiate. And and it doesn't necessarily mean I think people should go out and just be a jerk because they've re- realized that state, right? But, right. but 
but I think surely that gives you that comfort factor to be able to sleep at night and go, well, look, I mean, this is going great, but, you know, I have an option to walk away. I'm happy if we walk away. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. It's so true. That's fascinating. It's, it's such a wonderful journey. So I could talk to you all day about this sort of stuff, but um, t- tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. Where where has all of this wonderful experience led you to? Yeah, so, um, you know, after I sold the second company, I was kind of like evaluating what I wanted to do. And so for years, I've done a little bit of angel investing. And so I thought, you know, it'd be cool to like consult a startups. And so I went, spent a year doing that and I realized I really didn't enjoy it. Um, startups, they're great. I, I think they're a great part of our economy. But um, when you're in the startup phase, you're creating value. You're not really thinking about how to create any efficiency in your business necessarily. Cost doesn't really matter. It's really about hitting your next milestone, or at least that's what I experienced in the time that I was there. So I'm like, well, hey, this isn't really feeding my soul. And so then I got into the business coaching thing, which is what I do now. And my passion really last 20 years has been with small business owners. That's what I just love doing. I love, I love helping. I love being part of that world. And so I've gotten into business coaching and I have a small practice, not a big practice. I don't really want to do it um, necessarily full time. I, I really rather have uh, a base of clients that I know I can help, which I have about 75% capacity right now. Um, and I'm just helping clients. Uh, design and develop and grow and scale their company. So either they have the option to sell or they're maximizing the value of their business, which, you know, only leads to good things. It leads to more profit, better staff, better culture, better systems, more freedom. All that stuff is what I try to help people with. And, um, it's just a great, it's so rewarding and it's so fun. I had, uh, had a client the other day. Um, she's, you know, got a goal that's three X of her revenue for the quarter of what she's ever done. And she already got a third. We're, we're not doing it on a pure calendar quarter. And she already secured her first deal that's going to get her at like 33% of the way. And she's like, you could see it in her eyes that she believes it's going to happen now. And it's just that type of stuff. Like I just, it just lights my fire. Like it, it just gets my juices and it gets me back in the game. And I just love it. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I really like that. Tyler, in a moment, I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit maybe and, and ask you the question, um, if you know, for business owners out there who are growing and scaling and, and you know, wanting to build a saleable company, you know, if there's one tip that you might give those entrepreneurs given all of your experience. So um, I'll, I'll let that maybe ruminate for a moment. And, and while we're doing that, are, are you happy for people listening to this to reach out to you and, and connect? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love that. I always do. I, my website is thinktyler.com. Uh, thinktyler.com. My email is really easy. It's tyler at thinktyler.com. Uh, always would welcome conversations. I love talking with people, chatting with them. So yeah, anyone's welcome to reach out to me. That's cool. And, and are you on LinkedIn? Is, uh, can people reach out to you there as well? Yeah, it's Think Tyler on LinkedIn uh, is the the end domain. So, and yeah, is the end domain. Yeah, so Tyler Martin, M A R T I N. Think Tyler. We'll, we'll put some links actually in the in the show notes anyway, so that that should make it easier for listeners. So, mate, I'll, I'll put you on the spot. You know, is there to to wrap up? Is there one tip that that you know listeners could take away today to to think about for their business? Well, Simon, I'm only going to get one or do I get 10? <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they can contact you for the other nine. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a good answer. You know, there's just so many. I, You know, staff is, is a constant one that I seem to uh, run into with clients. And, and that's, you know, from training to culture to 
uh, added to treating people well in terms of the process and to developing a leadership team. So I think people usually is a big thing that drives value and having a really well honed team that, you know, I had a client call me the other day and I said, Oh, so do you want to grow and scale your business? She goes, no, I don't want to grow at all. And I go, well, what do you mean? And she goes, I can't even take care of what I have. I have people quitting every day. I'm, I'm way overwhelmed. I don't want to grow. I don't want to grow at all. I just want to not have to be up all night doing everything. And so this seems to be a reoccurring thing. I know there's a lot of things else that I could talk about, but this is one that seems top of mind for me. And it's part of that whole system and process thing. I think a lot of business owners just scale over or just ignore systematizing their business, looking at processes, trying to get themselves out of the business, or at least doing what they want to do in the business that they're really good at and what they should be doing. Um, that would be my top thing is just really focus around building a great team, building good systems and process. And a lot of it will fall into place. Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. Uh, It's funny, you know, business is a human and people construct, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we we need to make sure we look after the people in the business. (laughs) Right. No, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Awesome, buddy. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. I really appreciate you sharing your story with everybody and um, yeah, look, look, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Simon. I really appreciate it. You got a great show. I'm glad I get to be part of it. I feel honored. Thanks very much. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.